0: Well, join me in standing this morning as we turn in our bibles to John chapter 13 if you don't have a bible with you today you can grab a chairback bible it should be in front of you you'll find this morning's text on page 900 and as we come to the first 20 verses of John 13 today we come to what we often refer to as the second half of John's gospel or the first 12 books we often refer to as the book of signs and Chapter 13 through the end is the book of glory and it's a chapter 13 that begins this famous upper room discourse Jesus has with his disciples. And so let me read the first 20 verses of chapter 13 and then I'll pray and we'll continue on together this morning. So uh, do listen now as the Lord uh, speaks to you through his perfect and living word. rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not in all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling this to you now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the The word of the Lord Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you this day. And even pray now uh, that you would enlarge our hearts, that you would let us run in the way of your truth. Uh, Teach us the good news, incline our hearts to your Son, uh, that you might turn to us, that you might be gracious to us and make your face to shine upon us. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Sometimes you can have a meal that you never forget, and I'm thinking about those kind of meals that you never forget, not because of what you have eaten, but because of something said over that meal, something shared over that meal. As I think back on meals in my life, certainly in the last decade, there's a singular meal that stands out as one that I don't think I'll ever forget. And of all places, it happened in a McDonald's in Edinburgh, Scotland. I was there some years ago. I was tucked away for a few weeks in a library, uh, studying in this special archive section, these papers and journals and letters from an old Scottish preacher uh, working on a long project. And I'd received an email while I was there that week from Uh, another person in the land, a Scottish professor and pastor who said he was going to actually be at the school later on in the week, and he loved to sit down and and meet with me and and talk. He was going to be a reader of this dissertation that I was writing, and so uh, he came down later on that week, and we uh, sat for a few hours at the bookshop next door. It was also a coffee shop as well, and As the day began to run into the afternoon, the afternoon began to run into the evening, he said to me at some point, hey, before I head off to the train station, why don't we get some dinner? And so we walked towards the train station and settled on a McDonald's underneath the train station there in Edinburgh, and it was over a cheap fast food affair that we continued to talk about things in life and ministry, and it was one of those conversations that can happen over a meal that stick with you, that you probably will never forget. And I wonder if you have any such conversations over a dinner table that come to mind as you sit in here this morning. Uh, We come, of course, to a conversation, which is really more of a monologue and eventually a prayer that Jesus has at this Passover meal with his beloved disciples Uh, you almost might rightly say it's perhaps the most famous meal in human history that begins to occupy our attention and our ongoing studies through John's gospel. Because as we turn to chapter 13 this morning, we're turning to five consecutive chapters, often referred to as the upper room discourse, where Jesus is going to speak only hours before he is betrayed, and of course, even really only hours before he's going to die, Final words of instruction, final words of comfort, final words of even warning, and of course, a prayer on behalf of his disciples. And the masthead verse that really kicks off everything in the Upper Room Discourse is verse 1 of our text today, where John reminds us that everything that follows, not just in, in our scene this morning, but in the ensuing chapters... It tells us that this is all about Jesus loving his own who are in the world, and he loved them to the end. So what we want to think about along the way this morning is just that simple theme of the Savior's love. And John has a peculiar way of unfolding the Savior's love, because if you think about all of the Gospels in the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have a singular purpose, which is to point our attention to Jesus, Uh, But John Calvin once, I think, wisely remarked, he said, the synoptic gospels so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they show us Jesus' body, is what he said, but it's John's gospel who shows us Jesus' soul. Because it's there in the upper room with his disciples, as Thomas Goodwin would say, it's Jesus shares his heart with his beloved disciples, and it's a heart full of love this morning. We're going to see that in a variety of different ways. And I'm not sure who first said it or who first sang it. But someone said, someone has sung, that everyone's looking for love. And most people are just looking for it in the wrong places. I'm sure that you sit in here today and some of you know what that saying means. You've sought love from a person that didn't give it to you. You've sought love in a place that couldn't offer it. You sought love, perhaps even in a power or possession. Perhaps you're sitting here this morning realizing that so often you can find pursuits in the world that are a little more than pursuits of love that often, and inevitably even, uh, they turn up dull and altogether dry, and they never can satisfy because they're just empty. And what, what the Apostle John wants to do for us along the way this morning is help us see there is But one love that can satisfy, there's but one love that can fulfill the heart's longing for all love, which is love that comes from Jesus Christ. So I want to show you four things about the Savior's love this morning. The first is this. I want to show you the Savior's knowing love. Because if you look again at how the text begins, verse 1 of chapter 13, John tells us Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. So Jesus knows something there, students, as he's at that night before he's going to die. He knows a multitude of things is actually what the text is going to go on to tell us. But to catch you up to speed, even the language there of the hour having finally come is language that we talked about last week as we looked at the back part of John chapter 12, and we said in the main idea of that study that uh, the time had, had come. Uh, Because remember, Jesus had, in that time before Passover week began, it was the Sunday of Passover week, he had this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. People are waving palm branches about. People are saying, blessed is this king who has come in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees weren't terribly excited about that. They're ready to extinguish Jesus. They want him done away with. The world is seemingly going after Jesus. Even that world going after Jesus in the form of two Greek men going to Philip saying, Sir, we we wish to see Jesus. Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, Hey, they want to see you. And Jesus says, Well, the time, the the hour has come for the Son of Man to be lifted up. And it was a not-so-subtle illusion, wasn't it, to... The, the nature of his coming death. He's going to be lifted up on high that all might see him and live who look on him in faith. But the Jewish crowd surrounding Jesus there in that moment, they're altogether confused. They have no idea about this Messiah who actually is going to die. They don't have a concept for a Messiah who's going to be lifted up. And so the end of Jesus's public ministry came last week, and it ended rather abruptly. If you look back to verse 36 of chapter 12... You see, Jesus departed from them, that being the Jewish crowds. Not just departed from them, John says, he hid from them. And without any transition from that scene, John transposes us into the upper room, the night when Jesus is going to be betrayed. And Jesus knows things. You'll see, first of all, he knows who his people are. Verse 2 tells us, That it was during this supper that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Lord willing, we'll think about this more in our next study in John's gospel, but it's clear in this passage Jesus is not surprised by what's getting ready to happen with Judas. If you skip down to verse 11, you'll see he knew who was to betray him. And then verse 18 even, he speaks about knowing that there are those in his midst who are going to fulfill an ancient prophecy that this Son of Man, this Messiah, is going to be betrayed. But I want you to pay more attention, actually, here at the beginning, not to who Jesus knows as much as what Jesus knows. Look at verse 3. That tells us Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to. To God, So you'll notice he's got an, a consciousness of e- his eternal glory. He came from God. He has a complete awareness, doesn't he, of what's getting ready to happen. That he's going to die, he's going to rise again, he's going to ascend, he's going to return to the Father's right hand in heaven. And this is why I tell you, you need to see the Savior's knowing love. He knows exactly what's coming, and he continues to go towards exactly what's coming. Have you considered before that it's one thing to endure unexpected suffering? Think about that in your own life, or think about that in a friend's life, maybe a family member's life. They have faithfully endured unexpected suffering. There's a glory in that, isn't there? There's a different kind of beauty in enduring expected suffering. Jesus knows what's coming, and he still endures what's coming. His knowledge of what's coming actually increases the affliction. It reminded me even this week when I was meditating on that very truth. I read this story years ago where the protagonist is referred to as the chosen one in the book. and As the story advances, it's, it's pretty clear that the chosen one is, is born to die. And he's got this mentor that knows he's born to die, this young boy. But he doesn't tell the child. Why? Because to tell him that he's going to die, to tell him that the suffering, the hardship is coming on the way, is this immense burden that he would have to bear. And he's waiting until the time is right. But here's Jesus saying, I know exactly what's coming. And nothing's going to stop me from winning salvation for my people. So it's a knowing love. The second thing about the Savior's love is that it's a humble love. Because you see verse 4 tells us he rose from the supper. He takes off his outer garments and he takes a towel and ties it around his waist. If you glance through verse 5, you'll see the action continues and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And I'm not sure that we can, in our 21st century context here in North Texas, adequately understand the shock that would have belonged to the disciples in that moment that Jesus is washing their feet. They would have traveled here from Bethany. It would have been normal at that time in the ancient world that, that a host of a dinner would ensure that his disciples' feet, or I should say his guests' feet, were washed. But the host would never do it. The host would tell the lowest servant in the household to wash the feet. There's a story told of the old emperor's tyrant, Emperor, really, Caligula. When he wanted to humiliate the elders of the Senate in Rome, he made them wash his feet, because it was such a lowly thing to do: wash someone's feet. And here comes Jesus going around what probably is a U-shaped table. One by one, washing dirty feet. No one evidently says anything until, of course, Peter of all people says something. Look at verse 6. Lord, do you wash my feet? It's almost like you could translate it into our contemporary moment, children, by saying, Lord, what are you doing? Rabbis at this time in Jerusalem, they, they would preach about the glory of humility, but it was humility always within bounds, it had limits. Namely, rabbis never washed disciples' feet. And here comes a teacher who's washing the disciples' feet, and Peter has no category, does he? For, for a teacher with this kind of limitless humility. He seems to be like so many people that don't have categories, do they? For the depth of the Savior's love. Categories for the extent of this Lord's humility. Concepts of what it means, true glory and greatness, would stoop down to even a servant's towel around the waist. And look at what Jesus says verse 7. What I'm doing, Peter, you don't understand now. But afterward, you will understand. You know, he, he's, he's burning bright, no doubt, here, this genuine disciple. Uh, Peter and his, his, his knowledge is, is not actually completely clear on who Jesus is. And he continues, verse 8, Peter does, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus says, look at verse 8 at the end, If I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. Now, we'll come back to that at the end. But it's, it's striking, you know, of course, what, what happens here with Peter. Because he, he's this disciple, isn't he, full of extremities in his spirituality. No, you're never going to do that. Peter, I, I must do it. And then he essentially says in the next verse, doesn't he, well, pour it on then. He <laughs> says, not just my feet, my hands and my head. He's this volatile disciple. Have you noticed that in Peter's life? There's a stability that longs to Christ-likeness, isn't there? There's not a volatility that ought to be true in our spirituality. There's this, of course, stable faith that we ought to want to see growing. And Jesus, notice verse 10, as his humble love is further revealed, says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And if you stop and stare at that verse long enough, it seems rather mysterious, doesn't it? And saying, say, well, you are bathed, you are clean, but you need to wash your feet. You know, what is it exactly that Jesus is talking about here uh, to his disciples? And it's probably best to just simply think about the gospel realities that belong to anyone who is washed by Jesus. Because the text is going to go on and make it abundantly clear that this foot washing action. Uh, we might say it's something of even a prophetic sign act of Jesus' death. Because think about language that even Paul would use in Philippians 2, that he takes the form of a servant, humbling himself. Here's Jesus taking the form of a servant, humbling himself. Jesus there in the upper room washing feet. Paul, as he preaches the gospels in or preaches the gospel in Philippians 2, humbles himself to the point of death on the cross. And it's there, death on the cross, where it's precious. Perfect blood is spilled, and what must people be washed in to become clean? But that precious perfect blood of Jesus Christ, and when you come to Jesus Christ, you're washed once and for all, declared, bathed in Christ's blood, and utterly clean. But as it were, you, of course, this side of heaven, with the continued struggle against indwelling sin, you sin and must confess sin. Repent to the Lord and daily, as it were, have your feet washed in the forgiveness that comes through Christ Jesus. You students, maybe the simplest way you can think about it before, if you've ever gone to the beach and you went for a swim in the ocean or the sea or the Gulf of Mexico, you're out there swimming, bathing, as it were, in the water, and you're clean. But as you begin the pilgrimage home, what happens? Your feet get dirty. You got to wash them along the way home. Isn't that so true in the Christian life that when we come to Jesus Christ, we are washed and fundamentally forgiven of our sins, but as we make our pilgrimage home, our feet must daily be cleansed again in that flow of Christ's blood. The Savior's love, it's a knowing love. It's also a humble love. Thirdly, it is an exemplary love. Luke records for us, if you kind of match these gospel accounts together of everything that was happening there at the upper room, it's rather striking. And one thing that that Luke records for us is that it was there over the conversation at dinner that the disciples had a debate that evidently they loved to have throughout Jesus' public and even private ministry here on earth. They were debating there at the Passover meal which one of them was the greatest. We don't know exactly how the conversation went, but it seems quite possible, doesn't it? Jesus is hearing them talk about, who's the greatest disciple of the rabbi Jesus? That he begins to take off his outer garments, take on a towel and wash their feet. Then he puts back on the outer garments, and notice what we're told as the text continues... He says, do you understand, verse 12, what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. It's always interesting to me the way in which Jesus tends to engage his his disciples, at least in comparison with how he engages self-righteous hypocrites, self-righteous religious leaders, even how he engages... Sinners, tax collectors. I thing in here with the disciples is that they've been with him for so long, for so many years, and here they are just debating about which one of them is the greatest, such as their arrogance and their selfishness. Jesus does this incredible sign act of his humility and his love for them, and he says, "Do you understand what I've done for you?" And what's so interesting to me, and I wanted to interest you too this morning, particularly parents and leaders of any fashion is that he he doesn't have this rebuking personality towards his disciples, does he? He patiently, perseveringly preaches to them the truth. There are times, of course, when his people need correction, but the way in which that sounds, it's quite different than the way so many people tend to offer it in the name of Christ. Don't you understand what I'm doing here, he says? You call me teacher and Lord. And it's good you do that, because that's who I am. But he continues, you'll notice, in verse 14 and 15, If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet also. I've given this as an example to you, that you also should do just as I have done to you. So kids, here's the greatest object, lesson, in humility is what Jesus is saying. Do you want to know what it means to be truly great in the Lord's kingdom and economy of grace? You stoop down and serve people as the lowest of servants. This is how we minister. This is how we wait. This is how we serve others. Some of you would have noticed along with me a few weeks ago, wasn't it, on Halloween night, if your neighborhood was anything like the one where I was, Kids were parading around the sidewalks wearing costumes. Kids do funny things in costumes, don't they? I remember one in a Spider-Man costume, running about extending his hands. <laughs> as those spider webs, you know, would suddenly be coming out of his hands. And so every year it's always struck me as this incredible spiritual parable of the power clothing has. You put clothes on and suddenly you think You can do certain things. Think you must do certain things. The way in which John narrates this scene at the upper room, he makes a big deal about it, the clothing that Jesus takes off, the the clothing that Jesus takes on. Peter, of course, intimately involved in this. Perhaps thus it's not without accident when Peter gets to his first epistle and he tells all of you church leaders and all of you church members, clothe yourselves with what? Humility. Humility. To come to Jesus Christ is not just to be clothed with his righteousness, it's to be clothed in a garment of humility. And shouldn't that spiritual clothing actually change the way in which we live inform the way in which we live? I wonder if you're the kind of person that can think back on your service in the church and come to places much to your shame and even conviction where you thought, I'm too big to serve in that way. I'm too gifted to do that. Are there any places even in your life that you could point to serving in this lowest and humblest of ways? The beloved bride of, of Jesus Christ. So his love towards his people. It's a knowing love. It's a humble love. But it's an exemplary love. The fourth thing I want you to see is that it's a blessed love. Look at verse 17 says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And that comes after, doesn't it, verse 16, which he said, you must do them. A servant is not greater than his master. It's not just one thing for you to know this object lesson of humility. You must do this object lesson of humility. You must exemplify, embody this kind of humble love that I am showing to you. And it's as though he knows his people are often struggling for these kind of virtues and fruits and graces to grow in their life. And so he attaches to it in verse 17, this wonderful blessing. Blessed are you if you do them. Blessing is a huge thing in the Bible. You'll see it all the way from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter twenty. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 22, and all the way in between, it's kind of this foundational reality on God's covenant love and its blessing that comes from his covenant relationship with his people that bestows happiness upon his loved ones. And kids, do you know what the opposite of blessing is? Cursing. Cursing that throughout the Bible it brings disintegration, dysfunction, Death. Death, cursing, belongs to the pride-filled and the arrogant. But blessing belongs those who know this humility, who do this kind of humble love. It's as though what he is saying unto us, even in this very promise, is those who walk in the way of humility will find happiness. He knows not all of them will walk in that way of blessedness, doesn't he? Look at verse 18. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Uh, Judas occupies much of the teaching there in the early stages of the upper room discourse. We'll see it later on in our ensuing study as the verses continue. But for here, what Jesus is telling his disciples is don't be surprised with what's getting ready to happen with me being betrayed. Don't be surprised that not everyone who has partaken of my ministry will not be blessed by my love. Because notice what he says, verse 19, I'm telling this to you now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. How many times even in your own life have you thought back on the Lord's providence and realize that he had given you a promise beforehand. You ought not to be surprised with what is coming. And then perhaps you were surprised by what was coming. But then the years pass and you realize, well, he actually was preparing me beforehand. I just didn't have eyes to see it in that moment. That's what Jesus has been doing with the disciples here in this farewell discourse. He's keeping. Before their eyes, do you understand these things? Are you ready for these things? Don't be surprised by things. He's preparing them for what's coming. And know that even through that very same word and spirit, he prepares you even this day for what's coming. There's so often times, isn't there in life, when God's providential dealings in our hearts and in our souls, they, they seem to be altogether perplexing, they seem to be altogether puzzling. But if you're patient... If you live and feed upon God's promises in time, that providence becomes quite clear. Well, he ends with his second amen, amen statement in the passage. You'll notice verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. I think in context, the one that he sends, here are these ambassadors of his gospel, these apostles. That he's soon going to send out, which only continues today, of course, through the ministry of the church. That as you receive Christ's word and spirit, you're not only receiving the good news of Jesus Christ applied by the spirit, you're receiving the very Father who sent his Son as well on this mission of love. So, what kind of love is it? It's knowing love, it's humble love, it's exemplary and in, in blessed love. 1962, a theologian from Europe came over to America. This theologian at the time was perhaps the most famous in the world. He came to the University of Chicago and gave a series of lectures. And when he was done with the lectures, as these things often go, there was a Q&A panel discussion had with him. And one of the students stood up and asked him, because by this point in his career, he had written millions of words of theological discourse. And this student asked him, could you summarize in a single sentence your teaching for us? You know, What is like the singular summary of your contribution to Christian theology? And as the story goes, he paused noticeably long to give an answer. Because probably such an answer... It's hard to give, you know, off the cuff. But eventually he spoke, and he just said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And when I heard, first heard that story years ago, I thought that's such a trite way of summarizing everything that you had to offer. And maybe it is, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes the simplest thing that ought to amaze us are the simple things. Like stopping and staring at a Savior who stoops to show love for His people. You know, one old preacher said of verse 1 of chapter 13, that it's the most tender and touching verse in all the Bible. You know, it functions as something, verse 1 of chapter 13, of this inscription on the doorway into the upper room. And it's a doorway all about the Savior's love for... His people, And so what I want to do here at the end is return to verse 13 and show you two things, further things about Christ's love. First, I want to show you the people who are loved. Because you look at verse 1 of chapter 13, it says, he loved his own who were in the world. He later on speaks about those that he has chosen. So who are the recipients of? Of this love that's knowing, humble, exemplary, and blessed. His own. That he's got a powerful and peculiar love for his own. That he has a saving and special love for his own. That he has a tremendous and tender and triumphant love for his own. So who belongs to Jesus? Well, he gives us a hint, doesn't he, in verse 10, if you return to it. Or he simply says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash. Or even as he said, verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Those that belong to Jesus are those that know they are dirty with sin and need the washing that only he can provide. I think of one of my children who routinely throughout the week loves to play outside so much that the child comes in the back door and Emily or I will basically halt him where he stands. You're so dirty! <gasps> Stop right there! Too much mud! No clue! Seemingly that he needs to be clean. I wonder if you could sit in here today and have no clue until right now that you are dirty before the Lord because of your sin. That you must Be made clean. And there's only one washing under which you can go. That perfect, precious blood of Christ applied to his people. Like that old hymn would ask, Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? This is the people whom he loves. You'll notice secondly from verse 1 of chapter 13, not just the people whom he loves, but also the persistence of his love. Because what does it say at the very end, that final phrase? He loved them to the end. Think about it in the life of, of Peter. Here's a man that at the end of this chapter makes clear. Jesus knows not only, of course, Judas is going to betray him. Jesus knows Peter is going to deny him. And he loved Peter to the end. He knew Peter was going to falter. He knew Peter was going to fail. But he loved him to the end. Why? Because Peter belonged to him. Do you see the comfort that this ought to bring to Christ's people like you today? You failed last week, didn't you? If the Lord tarries, you will falter in some way tomorrow. But if you belong to him, he'll love you to the very end. End. He will complete the good work that he has done in you. Because his love knows no limit. This is the love that surpasses all knowledge, the kind of love that is beyond all comprehension. That sinners like you, as sinners like me, can be loved to the very end of all time and even further into all eternity. So, I do pray that you would receive this love today, that you might rest in it and rejoice in it, the Savior's love for sinners. Let's pray together. Father, your love is one that is perfectly revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Take the scales away from our eyes that we might see it this day. Soften our hearts to receive it. Wash us clean, we pray. And our beloved Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.